It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Greetings and welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses, and you're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. I would like to welcome my first guest to the show today. She is the 2020 Inspire Lifetime Achievement Award winner, and which are coming up March 6th in, uh, in Ottawa. And uh, it's a pleasure to have her with me. I'm going to try and pronounce her Anishinaabe name, Kiwed Nang Ang. Kiwed Anang. Kiwed Danang. And uh, that is yeah. North Star in the English language. And her, uh, you also know her as Jeanette Corbier-Laval. Uh, Jeanette, it's a pleasure to have a, you on the show with us today. Oh, miigwech for inviting me. Uh, yeah, well, thank you and miigwech for joining us. And uh, congratulations, by the way. Oh, excellent. Thank you very much again. <laughs> I, I am really, uh, well, uh, awed and impressed that uh, I've been given this award. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, when you look at uh, the things you have achieved and the things that you've been involved with over the years... Uh, you certainly, uh, I believe, uh, are are someone that is is very uh, deserving of this reward for sure. Um, and I have to say that if people go to look you up, uh, Jeanette Corbier Lavelle, uh, and see the picture of you, I wanted to point this out right away because I think that's an absolutely beautiful scarf you're wearing in this picture that you have of you online. Thank you. That was <laughs> from uh, the Inspire mm. uh, photo, I guess. Eh? Mm-hmm. Yes. Now, um, you know, going back and looking at the things that have led up to this uh, Lifetime Achievement Award of yours, um, it started out, I guess, very early. You were you were raised on on Wikwemekong, and uh, you have you learned English from your mother, who was a school teacher, um, and right. uh, and you learned uh, Ojibwe from your father. That's right, and. Uh it was such a difference, but this is the way a lot of our communities are because uh, my dad, on the other hand, never did go to school because uh, those were the days everyone was being taken off to residential school. So my mom went to residential school, but my dad stayed home because, uh, well, his parents didn't want him leaving. Mm. And they were agricultural people and they needed their sons to stay with them. It, well, you know, it's not a bad place to stay on uh, Manitoulin Island and Wikwimikam. You have beautiful, beautiful territory there. Oh, thank you. Well, it's my home. It's uh, where I was born. And th- this is uh, my connection to my people is through our land. Eh? Mm. So this is where I am again. And uh, well, this is who we are eh? as Indigenous people. We uh, know where we belong and who our people are. That sense of connection is through the land, our people, and all our uh, surroundings, the environment. Unfortunately, Manitoulin and uh, and my home, Wequemco, is uh, quite beautiful still. Mind you, I think we have a little bit of the outside uh, impact through... Uh, the uh, forest, they're getting cut it, cut down mm. just to sell wood. You know, some of the people do that for a livelihood. And uh, my dad used to just shake his head when he'd see these big log trucks uh, mm. leaving the reserve. Right? Mm. It almost was breaking his heart to see that. Yeah. I'm sure. 
It would break my heart to see that as it's one of the places I love to go to. I, I absolutely, uh, when you said connection to the land, that's the first thing I think of. When I get onto Manitoulin Island, uh, I feel that connection. It's a very strong connection mm-hmm. I feel when I'm there. So I think it's a very special place. Exactly. Well, I'm glad you feel that way. And the other aspect is uh, water that surrounds us, eh? Thank heaven it's still clean. You know, we don't have to worry about uh, getting, uh, you know, any kind of disease or mm. or uh, irritation from the water. It's still uh, quite clean, and mm. you can go swimming, and we eat the fish that's coming out of our uh, lakes and the uh, larger bodies of water. So. And, and, beautiful place to bring up our children and uh, grandchildren. Yeah, it sure is, and there are some beautiful lakes there, as you mentioned. Uh, and I don't know how many people know this, but of course, the Manitoulin is uh, the largest freshwater island in the world. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I don't know if people know that, but uh, it, it's a good claim. <laughs> it sure is. It sure and and is. it's not polluted, and it's still beautiful, like you said. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, so going back to your early life, uh, when you, you went to school, you did eventually leave, I believe, to go to university uh, in North Bay uh, off the island. Um, and then you moved into Toronto, uh, where you eventually met your, your, your husband uh, that you married, uh, David Lavelle, in, in 1970. And that's when, I guess, a, a turn of events happened for you that kind of started this, this trail. It may have started before, but it seems like a big one that, that influenced you. Because when you got married to a non-Indigenous person, you lost your, your Indigenous rights, uh, your status as, as a, an Indigenous woman, uh, which you didn't feel was correct, and you, you challenged that. Exactly. And uh, I initially, I really didn't think it was going to create such a big fur, you know, right across Canada, but that's what happened. And, and you know, when I'm getting this Lifetime Achievement Award, it, it's all the more uh, amazing because in the early days, I was always uh, seen as a... Well, well, as an agitator, as, uh, you know, I was doing wrong, and why am I doing this? And, you know, all kinds of accusations. It was really controversial mm. for many, many years. So it, it's taken 50 years yeah. to uh, turn that around. But uh, I see now right across Canada that uh, people don't have that feeling anymore. We're not following the... Uh, the Western style of uh, thinking, you know, about government and who our citizens are, who our people are. Because that Indian Act, of course, as you know, was written by uh, British parliamentarians who are here and uh, from their perspective. Plus, on the other hand, you know, the uh, government officials, their thought was uh, the fewer Indians, the fewer responsibilities we have, the fewer... uh, conditions we will have to uh, uh, we will have to put in place for mm-hmm. our people through the treaties mm-hmm. so the whole intention was get rid of as many uh, mm-hmm. Indian uh, people mm-hmm. because we were called Indians in the Indian that day now we say mm-hmm. indigenous or Aboriginal yeah. or we're saying First Nation I should say mm-hmm. more but uh, but that was the original intention and when I went to Toronto, I was fortunate in that 
I was able to meet uh, other young people from around Ontario. We all converged in Toronto because, uh, as many people know, there's no employment on our reserves within our community. So to get employment and and try and fend for ourselves in this world, many of us went to Toronto. Mm. And I met David at the Indian Friendship Center where I was working as a youth worker, and he was a musician, so he came and volunteered, <laughs> and that's how things went. And uh, but but I just can't believe all the all the controversy, you know, all the uh, Aboriginal or the Indian men's organizations, and at the time it was called the National Indian Brotherhood. Mm. And, you know, with chiefs right across Canada, they were so upset with my challenge to the uh, this particular section of the Indian Act. But we did uh, our thing as women. And once uh, my challenge uh, went into the media and it was on the newspapers, women from right across Canada started contacting me and phoning me and saying, this is what happened to me too. What can we do? We want to do something because there were many hardships faced by our women and our children because of this mm-hmm. section in the Indian Act. And uh, that wasn't really talked about in those days. All they said was, well, this is the way the law goes, so you have to leave, get out. You're not uh, part of this community anymore. And that was really hurtful because as I said, Growing up here, you're part of it. I had the language, my relatives, everything. How can you be banned from your own people, your own community? But technically, that's what this particular section of the Indian Act did. But being a young person, and I look at the young people nowadays across Canada who are protesting with uh, the Wet'suwet'en chiefs in uh, BC, mm. it, just that uh, passion, they, this is wrong, we have to do something about it. And, and so we're seeing all these blockades. Mm. But in those days, the, the same uh, idea was there, this is wrong, we, we can't let it continue. Mm. Even though some of our own leadership was telling us, no, this is the way it's always been, this is our tradition. <laughs> and we would question that, we said, no, it isn't, it's not mm. uh, our tradition, you know? Mm-hmm. I find interesting what you're saying there about the uh, pushback you got from the National Indian Brotherhood or the Assembly of First Nations, which it is now called, and people within yeah. your own community. I, I, I was really surprised. I mean, exactly. I thought you might get that fee- that pushback from the government or in, in Indigenous Affairs, but what was your sense when that happened? Were you... <laughs> I would have been very surprised if, you know, at that point to, to say, why are you pushing back against your own people's rights? Well, we tried to raise that question, but the answers we got as uh, women, you know, who mm. have had our uh, membership to our communities taken away, what we got was, this is the way it is, this is the legal uh, document that governs us, and no one was... Well, the leadership at the time didn't want to uh, question, I guess, the bureaucrats. Mm. And that whole uh, sense of, well, whatever they say we have to do in order to get a little bit of funding here to exist. Mm. And initially, in the early days of the treaty, 
like the Indian agents and the bureaucrats would withhold uh, mm-hmm. rations like food. And so it was a question of survival as well. That mentality came into to follow this uh, Indian Act piece of legislation that was designed to eliminate us to... Uh, yeah, and, and have complete you know, control. Have, and have complete control, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And those treaties weren't even considered. You know, that was a whole total separate uh, legal documents, yeah. and uh, and they should have been binding, and the government, the bureaucrat, should have understood the legal aspect of that, but they mm-hmm. didn't. Yeah. And then our people were also forbidden to get lawyers to help us, lawyers who understood, you know, the laws of Canada at that time. Yeah, it, and there's a legal term for it, but uh, we didn't. All we had was our teachings of uh, we had our principles, and we had our teachings on how to treat each other, how to live together. Mm-hmm. And our people did recognize that the land that we're living on right now, we don't uh, own it in terms of the way non-Indian people look at land. You know, they say. I bought this property, this is mine, I can do whatever I want with it. Our people don't look at land that way. Mm. We look at land as it's a, it's a gift eh, that was given to us uh, for our people and for our future generations. Right, to, to so look after and take, take care, care of. It. We, <laughs> exactly, because uh, other generations are coming, and in order for them to survive, and in order for the whole environment, like the animals, birds, the fish, trees, that's all our responsibility to uh, take care of for the next generations. Mm. You don't go and destroy it and pollute it and uh, whatever. But uh, this is the attitude of the outside society is land ownership. And Mm. so this is why I think they were trying to get us off for a little bit of land that we had eh, and push us us off. Mm into the urban centers where we wouldn't have that connection to our land. Well, fortunately, you uh, being on Wikwemekong uh, are on unceded uh, territory there, and uh, and hopefully uh, there won't be a challenge uh, or that you'll have that uh, property and land to take care of for future generations uh, uh, forever. And um, I just want to say that uh, even though going back to your your. Uh, your case to bring forward that you lost your your uh, status when you got married to a non-indigenous person that was unsuccessful at the time however it was something as you say you got calls from other women and it did uh, spur other women to move forward on this issue and challenge it and eventually that did uh, get turned around and you eventually were able to uh, regain your status along with other women after uh, bill c31 was implemented in 1985 Exactly. And that was under the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Mm-hmm. Because we were being discriminated against uh, because we're women. Because mm. it didn't affect the indigenous men or the Indian men at the time. Right. In fact, uh, all the non-Indian women they married uh, gained Indian status. So you can <laughs> see the mentality there didn't make sense to us. Well, yeah, but it made sense to, I think, the Indigenous Affairs who were, were trying to assimilate Indigenous people, right? Uh, non-Indigenous exactly. people becoming status and uh, getting rid of the status people. It's, uh, you know, it, it played right into the hands of what they had always been trying to do 
in terms of assimilation. It was planned. Yeah. But thank goodness uh, our people are uh, resilient and we uh, have that will to survive and persist and stubborn, I guess. (laughs) Because our women, when uh, our own Indian organizations wouldn't support us, we said, well, then we form our own. And that's one of the good things that came out of this, all that controversy. Right. You know, like in 1971, 72, we, uh, we formed the Ontario Native Women's Association, still existing today, still doing really uh, positive uh, uh, programs and speaking out, advocating for the rights of our women. So that's still in place. So many good things happen because of this challenge. The voice you're hearing is that of Jeanette Corbier-Lavelle. Uh, she's calling in from uh, Wikwomekong on Manitoulin Island. And she is the 2020 Inspire Lifetime Achievement Award winner. And uh, she will be uh, presented uh, on March 6th in Ottawa at the uh, Inspire Awards Gala. Uh, and congratulations to her once again. Uh, Jenna, I have to ask you, Corbier, I'm familiar with, Alan Corbier, are you, Are you? I, I believe he's from Wiki as well. Uh, are you related? No, he's from Chiging, which is okay. uh, another reserve. Uh, mm. It's only about half an hour from here. Mm. Okay. Um, yep. What was your question? Well, I was just going to say, are you related? Oh, I, I believe we are, all the Corbiers. I think we descended from one of the first uh, Corbiers who mm. moved into our communities. Mm. And obviously, Corbier came from uh, the French mm. uh, people who were here initially and mm. uh, joined our people. I think the first Corbier was, uh, um, well, he was with, with us as uh, trading and, you know, assisting, joined our people. So we have Corbiers on Manitoulin Island, Chiging, and on the North Shore. Right. Uh, so, Jeanette, for over 50 years, you've been uh, championing causes for uh, for women uh, and, and that have resonated across Canada and beyond. You, as we pointed out, you're the former president of the Ontario Native Women's Association. As we said, you lost your status, uh, but uh, were eventually uh, gained that back after uh, Bill C-31 came into effect. Um, and... Uh, You've been advocating for Indigenous women's rights in organizations of American states, the UN, Human Rights Committee, uh, and uh, Committee for uh, to End Sex Discrimination. Um, you you are, I believe, now a teacher yourself in your community. Yes. Uh, well, throughout all this, I raised my three children and uh, in close proximity to my people, my family, eh? Mm-hmm. So they have uh, Nishinaabe names, like my first uh, mm. son. His name is uh, Nimki, mm. which is thunder in our language. And my grandmother uh, gave him that name. And mm. she said this is uh, one of our uh, ancestors. His name was Nimki. Mm. And my daughter is uh, called Wabmimi, which is white dove. And my youngest one is Ajbek, which is mountain. Mm. And we uh, put a lot of emphasis on having our traditional names. So, right. So th- this is where I am again. And uh, as they were little growing up, I left the city of Toronto and came back home and been here ever since. <laughs> as a teacher, ended yeah. up being a secondary school teacher. And, yeah. And, and like you said, I uh, 
to travel internationally to the UN and to Geneva, you know, just making presentations. This is before Canada adopted the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. Mm. And I believe that's going to happen this fall, I hope, mm. you know, so that it's uh, legislated. But, you know, but, I think uh, I think part of what you were doing there was laying the groundwork for uh, these things to come to effect, to bring more attention to Indigenous issues in Canada, uh, to the people f- around the world. And and that's part of why you're being recognized. I also want to mention that uh, you... you uh, um, received the uh, Governor General uh, Award in 2009, I believe, and uh, York University granted you an honorary doctorate in 2016. Exactly. Yeah, it, it's it's been good lately. Actually. <laughs> Not to mention in, in 2017 when you became uh, an, you got a member of the Order of Canada. Congratulations on that. Exactly. Yeah. Well, thank you. So all these things are coming about and uh, it, it really is an honor and uh, I, I feel that it's on behalf of all of our indigenous women who have been put on the outside and struggled so hard and now we're getting uh, our recognition and the fact that uh, women are the center of our communities. Absolutely. You know, w- without our women, we wouldn't have any future generations. So this is why it was so important, mm-hmm. you know, to maintain that connection to our families, to our communities, to our land that uh, we were born on and uh, have that connection to. And my uh, friend in the early days in the 70s, and uh, Mary Tuax early, she's Haudenosaunee, uh, she's Mohawk, and she was also speaking out against the section you know, because it deprived her of her status. Mm. And she used to say, my wish is that uh, when the time comes that I am back home again and I can be buried with my ancestors back on her own land. Mm. And thank heavens that that happened. Mm. She was one of the first ones to get her status back in 1985. I think it was April mm-hmm. sometime. Nice. And I was so glad that happened to for her, you know. Well, it, She and- struggled with that. And as you pointed out, women uh, are the life givers. They're uh, also, uh, as we know, many indigenous communities are uh, matriarchal, uh, giving uh, women, exactly. you know, that uh, that role and uh, and that uh, that uh, uh, recognition as not only life givers but having that uh, um, that power uh, to that they that they bring and the wisdom that they bring to that role as well. Mm-hmm. Well, if you look at some of our communities, uh, many of our communities, it's the women who keep the communities active and keep things uh, going, you know, taking care of each other. You know, we're involved, we're the teachers, not only within our home, we're the first teachers, obviously, Mm. for language and cultural Mm. events, but also uh, within our school system. So women are dominating all those various fields. Certainly are, and, and will always continue, I believe. And speaking of that, I think it was your mother who uh, started, founded the the Wikwemekong uh, powwow, if I'm not mistaken, was part of that. Yes, so maybe that runs within our clan, <laughs> you know, sort of always being there at the forefront. But she was one of the first members to say, "This is our culture. This is what uh, you know our people did," and 
Yeah, she was one of the members to bring that first uh, oh, oh, back to back to us. Mm. And I was still in my, uh, well, early 20s, I guess. Mm. So we all uh, were, because we were forbidden to have these kind of events, so we learned our dances, we learned our songs, made our own uh, regalia. So all that happened in the early 70s, and my mom was one of the ones who promoted all that. That's wonderful so. to hear, and, and you've uh, lived up to that legacy of continuing those things on and, and uh, become uh, very much uh, uh, of, of someone that, that other women can look up to, and I believe that is why you are receiving this Lifetime Achievement Award from Inspire uh, next week, uh, March 6th, in Ottawa. It's, uh, it's wonderful to hear. It's wonderful to speak with you and, and to hear uh, about the things that you've accomplished and the things that you are, are continuing to do. You mentioned... Um, uh, that you're a school teacher and, and also about the language is, is language uh, being revitalized within your community like it is elsewhere? Oh, most definitely. And I think my community is one of the ones that are at the forefront because many of our people, we still use our language. Mm-hmm. And we have a lot of uh, instructors who go out to other communities to assist and uh, revitalize the language in their communities as well. So uh, language is uh, another big aspect. Well, if we're talking about being a nation, a Anishinaabe nation, then we have to recognize all the components of nationhood, and we still have all that, Mm -hmm. except the one part that we're right now uh, struggling with and uh, asserting that uh, recognition of nationhood is uh, governance. We mm. need to be able to uh, govern ourselves and you know, make our own decisions. So nations have uh, land. We have that. We have language. We have that. Obviously, citizens, and we will uh, recognize all our people, and we have our spirituality, and that's really, really coming back and getting revived. And then our own governance, and these are all aspects of nationhood. It's all there, but we're still working on it, though, to develop, make it stronger. After all these years of colonization, it'll it'll take a while, but I can see it happening. <laughs> uh, I think I can as well. And speaking of uh, other teachers uh, from your community going out to, to teach in other areas, I believe um, there is someone from uh, Wikimakong uh, who teaches on the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation, whose name escapes me at the moment. I just heard that. I think his name is James. Yes. James Shawana. James Shawana. Yes, that's him. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I I was talking to one of the elders from that community, and uh, they mentioned that. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's wonderful. Uh, uh, Jeanette, we're going to have to leave it there, but it's been such a pleasure to speak with you, and congratulations once again on your Lifetime Achievement Award uh, with Inspire that's happening next week in Ottawa. Okay. All the best. Uh, Take care. Bamapi. Bamapi. That was uh, Jeanette Corbier-Laval. She is the Inspire Lifetime Achievement Award winner for 2020, and that is uh, happening next week in Ottawa at the National Arts Centre on March the 6th. Congratulations to her once again. It's been a pleasure speaking with her. Don't go away. We're going to be right back here on Moment of Truth with a very interesting uh, guest. You'll want to stick around for this. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Ottawa and Toronto. That is 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, and of course, 
anywhere across the country if you download the Radio Player Canada app. It's my pleasure to welcome my next guest to the show, Mr. Tom Wilson. He is a three-time Juno-winning musician with multiple gold records, all by other people, right? Yes, that's right. (laughs) (laughs) And he's also written for and recorded songs with Sarah McLaughlin, City and Color, Jason Isabel, Colin James, Lucita Williams, Billy Ray Cyrus, Mavis Staples, and the Rankin family, just to name a few. (laughs) You think I'd be, with that list, you think I'd be retiring now, don't you think? (laughs) And, uh, of course, uh, Junkhouse. Uh Uh-huh. You know, and uh, you may know him also because he's not just a musician. Uh, he has, uh, I went to see uh, an art exhibit of him uh, recently. Not yeah. A while. In Burlington, yeah. it was where I saw the show. That's right. That's It's going to be a traveling exhibition, too. It's going across the country slowly, but yeah. it is going across the country. Right. And um, the reason that Tom is, uh, is here in, on the show with us today is because of something new he has added. Uh, because he's also an author. Uh, the book that he uh, wrote is Beautiful Scars. You may have seen that around at your local bookstore. Uh, I have uh, certainly had the chance to read it for over a year now because I've been waiting to get Tom <laughs> into the I'm studio. sorry, David. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry, David. <laughs> but that's okay, Tom. It's, it's a pleasure just that the fact that you are here. It's mm-hmm. great that we finally were able to connect and get you into the Absolutely. studio. Absolutely, yes. Uh, that's the main thing. And, of course, you know, it's really cool that the new thing that you've got going on is with McMaster University. You've got the scholarship that you d- you've now developed. Well, um, I developed a scholarship. Uh, first of all, uh, my job, just to backtrack a little bit, yeah. David, is um, I, f- I, f- I only found out that I was uh, a Mohawk yes. um, seven years ago. Yep. And by a complete stranger, complete mistake, somebody whose grandmother was friends with Bunny Wilson, who raised me mm-hmm. and who told me, you know, she said, in fact, my grandmother was so close with Bunny Wilson that she was there the day you were adopted. Mm-hmm. I said, what? So that started this journey that, mm-hmm. uh, that I, I began at that moment yeah. finding out that, uh, uh, that I was adopted, that I was raised by my great aunt and uncle mm-hmm. and, uh, taken, uh, my mother was, uh, taken off of, uh, the reserve in Ganawake. Mm-hmm. And uh, she uh, went through her pregnancy in Hamilton with my aunt and uncle and gave birth to me at St. Joseph's Hospital. None of this I knew. My cousin Janie, she acted as my cousin my entire life. And uh, I, I only found out shortly after I found out I was adopted that Janie was, in fact, my mother. Mm-hmm. Uh, I asked Janie, I said, you know, I found out I was adopted, Jane, just a little while ago. If you can ever tell me anything. And she said, Tom, I'm sorry. I don't know how to tell you this. And I hope you forgive me, but I'm your mother. So Janie is uh, Mohawk in French from Ganawake. My father, Louis Bova, was a Mohawk from Ganawake. I grew up thinking that I was a big, puffy, sweaty Irish guy my entire life. I'm actually a big Mohawk guy. And I'm, you know, in colonial terms, if I can use, if I can say that, you know, because uh, the things I get asked now are, you know, well, how Indian are you? You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. I I think you do. (laughs) And, um, you know, in in colonial terms, I guess I'd be considered 75% Mohawk. As far as the Mohawks go, uh, it's like, hey, good. Come on in. Mm. Do you want something to eat? You know, mm. welcome. Mm. Uh, there's never been a question about how, 
you know, about my blood quantum, mm-hmm. uh, anything like that. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, that's been that's been the journey in doing that, David. And this is a very long answer to a very short question. Okay. I must say, we got time. That um, my job, uh, I can't, I can't. I come from seven generations of of iron workers and mm-hmm. skywalkers, and mm-hmm. my my great grandfather was in that photograph of those guys sitting eating their lunch and building Rockefeller Center. You know, all those guys from Ganawage are, are in that photo. Yeah. That's where I come from, you know. My brother was was at Ground Zero in 9-11, tearing debris apart so the firefighters could get in and put the fire out. I can't get to being coming part of my culture the way my brothers and sisters did. I wasn't born into this. Mm-hmm. I, uh, if, if I was to be a, uh, a bleeding heart, I would say that I am an, uh, you know, one of the ultimate victims of colonialism where I was completely, my culture was wiped out before I was born. You know, the opportunity to be able to learn my language, share my language, the opportunity for me to, as I developed as, as, as a child, to... Um, have all those stories mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. my my family and my reserve and the Mohawk culture to have all to have all that resonate with me. I never got that opportunity. So now, as a sixty year old man, I feel that the good work that I do artistically um, and and the good work that I do helping out uh, my uh, community is how I'm going to become more familiar with how it feels to be a Mohawk. Right. Now that is the answer. Let's refresh because people may have forgotten what the question is. <laughs> <laughs> I know I did. <laughs> <laughs> and that's because of this uh, this scholarship you have developed with McMaster University. Right. This is part of the deal. Yeah. Part now, of the deal is, uh, yes. Yes, sorry. Go ahead. Part of the deal is, is, is that, that, that that's how I can uh, do something positive yeah. for... Um, for the indigenous community. Uh, I was asked by McMaster for my creative properties. Yes. Um, for, by the McMaster University Library. The McMaster yeah, University. Yeah. Yeah, the archives are fascinating because they took me there and they have, they have like scriptures written by monks from, you know, 2,000 years ago. And they have the first draft of a clockwork orange. You know what I mean? With all the notes in the, really? in the side. Cool. They have Einstein's brain. Yeah, at McMaster University, they and they asked for my for my uh, all my writing books and recordings yeah. and all that stuff, yeah. which is great because my wife just says, "Well, we, now we can get rid of all the stuff in the basement, right?" right? <laughs> <laughs> that's a reason to clear this <laughs> stuff out. Um, so, in doing that, when they asked me to do that, I thought that was that's a real honor, mm. something I'm very proud of. But at the same time, uh, as these things come to me, as these opportunities come to me, uh, that put me in the spotlight. It's my job to put my culture into the spotlight. And if I can't put my culture into the spotlight, I'm there to assist yeah. uh, the indigenous community. So I started the uh, Tom Wilson Indigenous Scholarship at McMaster University in honor, honor of, of Bunny Wilson, yes. the the woman who raised me, because yeah. her her uh, her charitable, loving heart was no. There's no greater uh, for me on this planet. So that's what I've started, and uh, we're we're uh, giving the archives in a ceremony on uh, April uh, 29th, and on. Uh, on May 1st, I'm doing a concert, uh, a symphonic uh, yeah. concert and reading um, to help raise money. And we're, we're going out there and all my kind of deep-pocketed corporate friends are going to be getting phone calls yeah, over the next good. two months. I remember I saw that, that you would be reaching out to friends. 
But I really like the idea that this is a symphonic concert as well. It's correct, yeah. Yeah, it's cool. Well, there's different ways. See, I, I, I didn't think that I, I didn't I didn't know I could write a book mm. until I did it, right? Mm. And uh, I'm dyslexic, so uh, it seems that I can write the books. I just have a hard time reading them back. And I'm writing a second book called Blood Memory, yeah. which is continuing this journey of mm. of uh, putting the Mohawk culture back into the light. Mm. Um, that's my job now. I'm 60. If I have 20 more years on this planet, it's going to continue to be my job. And every step of the way um, is is challenging uh, as an individual, but it's uh, completely fulfilling. And I feel that if I actually, you know, had a stronger faith, I'd feel that I was uh, fulfilling uh, a practice that is going to be bringing me closer to a higher power. You know, I wish we had a lot more time, uh, Tom, only because... Uh, I, okay, I hold on. We waited two years, and you're going to cut me off. What's going <laughs> no, on I'm here, not David? Cutting you off. What I'm saying is, there's so much for us to talk about. Well, we, I can come back. Uh, okay, I'm going to hold you to that. All right, just uh, I'll have Sarah get a hold of me. Yeah. <laughs> so, because you know, I wanted to talk about the book. Yeah, a lot, for sure. A lot, yeah. uh, because it shaped so much of your early life. Uh-huh. And and uh, talk about the hammer because uh, you know it's been such an inf- influential place. The Hamilton, Ontario, is what we're talking about when we say yeah. the hammer. Yeah. Um, and you keep going back there, and I'm sure you would have had the opportunity to move away from the hammer a few times. Well, yeah, I did. I lived in L.A. and uh, I lived in Toronto and I lived in Halifax. Mm-hmm. But I mean, now I'm into my grandkids. I'm mm-hmm. actually after I leave here, mm-hmm. I'm going to pick my grandkids up from school. My grandsons, right? That's that's my other job. Is yeah, you know sure. is. It, um, and so uh, I'm not. I'm not leaving Hamilton now. You know. So, so the reason uh, I I wanted to to sort of elaborate on that and 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 bring that back was just that it's such a a hub and as I said this this focal point of your life, um, and so much happened there and now you've got this thing with McMaster that's going on the scholarship which is great, uh, but I guess um, where I was going is when you you talked earlier about. Uh, your culture, not having being exposed to it, not having that opportunity to mm-hmm. learn that you're, you're up going. You're not the only person, of course, like that. I remember seeing you seeing you hang around uh, Six Nations. You were up there at lacrosse games and, and oh yeah, we like used to go right? yeah yeah see the arrows for sure. Yeah. So, um, but this has really galvanized in many ways. I think the, the focal point for you when you learned this and you were talking to your your mom thinking she was your aunt all your life. Cousin. Yeah, yeah. cousin. Yeah. You know, uh, what was that like for you at that moment? Well, um, let's just say uh, I felt I felt betrayed. Mm. Uh, I felt that I had been uh, lied to, that yeah. I was the odd man out. And it's mm. funny, David, because without, you know, uh, trying to bring too much drama to this, I always felt like the odd man out. Mm. I always felt that uh, uh, I had a lack of identity. Mm. Um, and as a result, I, uh, I tried to do all kinds of things to define myself. I found that I was able to define myself on stage. Mm-hmm. I was able to create my own character, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. through acting and through performing that that was the person that I would be, which is not the person that I was ever. Mm. It was just a, a comfortable place for sure. me to go that I, that, that I could, at least feel that I had some kind of identity. My whole point being that without identity, what do we have to offer the world? And, and, and that's, that's where I'm at. The closer I get to my culture, the more I feel, uh, uh, as a whole, you know, and, and that's, that, that's an important thing for all of us. And when, when we talk about, 
the indigenous population and and how the culture, you know, uh, has been ripped from us and uh, how we have been defined by uh, the colonial world, you know, really we struggle, I think all of us as individuals, to, to keep uh, our identity mm. or, you know. There are important factors that are, I don't think are talked about enough. I did a, I did a uh, literary reading mm-hmm. on a, a ferry going over to uh, Manitoulin Island, <laughs> okay. and uh, I was reading from my book, and mm-hmm. I was saying, you know, my name is Thomas George Lazar. That was the name I was born with. I mm-hmm. come from a family of Mohawk Skywalkers, chiefs, gangsters. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I was proclaiming myself as a Mohawk. And over to the right-hand side of the stage I was on, there was these four four big guys with their arms crossed, listening. And I thought, it kind of made me, it kind of made me doubt myself in a way, David. And then I went to sign books at the end of this, and I was signing books for these people. And at the end of this long lineup of people getting autographs from me were these four guys, Mm. still with their arms crossed. And I'm 60 years old, and I'm thinking, Oh man, this is going to (laughs) hurt. And they came up to me and the one guy put his finger in my chest. He goes, Hey you. I said, yeah. He says, you're just like me. You know, a 60 scoop kid, right? Mm. Which in, I guess in some ways I am in, in some ways, you know what I mean? Although I don't, I don't like to fall under any definition, but that's how I was identified Mm. by, by, by this guy. That, that was a kind of an important moment uh, for me to, uh, not only did I not get punched in the throat, but I also had some kind of feeling that I belonged into this community somehow. Was that when you, when you found out about your, your Mohawk heritage, uh, was that a moment when sort of the, uh, the identity became clear? Did it, it felt right? It, it answered those questions of for you about wanting to find somewhere to belong? It might have answered the questions, but it hasn't fulfilled the desire. I mean, uh, just, you know, two nights ago, talking to my sister in Ganawage, you know, my nephew was, uh, was heading home. People, the men are coming home, mm. you know what I mean, for the better. And I felt that... Uh, I wanted to feel that too, mm. and uh, so so this is a challenge that you know defining my knowing who I am, knowing my identity is one thing, and it's calming. But the day to day challenges uh, like that—that's that was a that was also that was a difficult moment for me. Mm. Okay, David, because it was like I felt like I should be getting in my truck and I should be driving down there too. When in fact, uh, again, I don't completely know my place. Yeah, okay. I, I can readily identify with that. Yeah. Completely, okay. Good. Yeah, I'm, gl- sure. I'm glad I'm not alone, David. You well, know yeah. I mean? No, for sure. Um, so, uh, I t- uh, just want to jump in and let people know that the voice you're listening to is that of Tom Wilson, musician, uh, author, and uh, artist, mm-hmm. uh, and and now uh, someone who has established a scholarship with McMaster University for the benefit of uh, secondary students graduating and going on to uh, McMaster to study in whatever, uh, whatever discipline Anything they, they want. Yeah? Um, uh, indigenous, uh, yeah. indigenous students, 
uh, from and it's if just it's it, sadly restricted to just Ontario, but mm. also that's a bonus. Sure. That it's big yeah. province, right? Sure. Yeah. So it's uh, it's the borders of Ontario, and uh, it, it's on the belief that uh, every Indigenous baby that's born is a win against colonialism, mm. and every Indigenous student that walks out a university door with a with a with a with a graduation, mm. you know, mm. piece of paper. That's moving this world into a, a better place. That's my true belief. Yeah. Uh, as my sister said from Ganawagi the other day, you know, she goes, well, how is it down there? What are they saying about us? I said, well, I said, you know, it's Toronto. It's a big city, man. You know, it's like if you inconvenience people, you know, and, and shut their transit down, they're going to get all pissy. She says, oh, okay. Well, she says, think about this. We're, we're out there on railroad tracks standing up for seven generations to come. We're looking out for the future. If people want to think about the nose at the end of their face, that's their problem. My sister's a genius, Lynn Bova. And I, I feel that that was, that was like put it all into perspective for yeah, me, you know? Sure. Uh, and, and that's very true. And, and it's, it's something that uh, I wish we would hear more about mm-hmm. during all of these things. Because the focus is directly on the, the moment and what's going on, not the greater issue, not what necessarily what Indigenous people are standing up for, as you just pointed out from your, your sister. And that's, that's great that she said that. And I appreciate you sharing that with us. By yeah, way. it's an important point. Yeah, I want to go back to something you said, uh, Tom, and that is uh, about your book. So uh, you mentioned that, you, yeah, I, I can write the book, uh, Beautiful Scars. You wrote the book, but you just have a hard time reading it back. Yeah. Uh, but because of your dyslexia, you know. Yeah. But you're a musician. Mm-hmm. You've been writing music your entire life. That's right. Performing that stuff. Yeah. What's the difference there? Or well, is there a difference? Um, uh, the difference is, well, one difference is I've been trying to um, tell you a story, David, that hopefully resonates with you or, or a feeling that resonates with you in three verses and a chorus for my entire life. And suddenly I was given 70,000 words. I actually wrote 130,000 words for this, for, for this first book. And it was edited down to 70,000 words. So it's like uh, going from uh, picking you up in a smart car and uh, us driving to Florida and me picking you up in a Cadillac Escalade and us driving to Florida. It's like all of a sudden we have all this room to be able to communicate with one another. Because when you're writing, when you're writing songs or when you're writing books, the conversation's already going on between you and me, the person who picks up the book. Mm-hmm. And 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 my and me, we're having that conversation already. So that's the, the, there's a lot of uh, there was a lot of luxury in being able to tell a story with that much liberty, with that much space. Um, as far as reading it back, um, I do have a hard time reading, but uh, I uh, I've always been I've worked really hard to be able to say what I need to say in the written word. Mm. Um. I'd like to touch on something else, and that is your artwork and, and the exhibit that you've got circulating mm-hmm. and moving around, which is fabulous. Uh, uh, as I said, I went to see this in Burlington when it was set up there, and I really like the room. It, your, it was a room uh-huh. based in your in your home that you grew up yeah, in. Yeah, 162 East 36th Street, yeah. Hamilton, Ontario. Yeah, yeah, and, and of course, that, that was a really uh, unique sort of perspective in terms of taking you back and, and seeing what, you know, how that, what that, that looked like and and giving you that space to, to physically mm-hmm. see. 
Uh, but the other thing, the artists, you were influenced by someone heavily, I think, that, that, that helped you in terms of the way you present your, your work. Yes, no? It's an ongoing. Um, okay. Janie Lazar, mm -hmm. my mother, mm -hmm. uh, always drew. Okay. Was always drawing. Um, uh, I feel that uh, as this identity has come towards me, it's, it's changed and shaped how I've decided to express myself. So I've been writing inside my paintings for 25 years. I've been painting for 25 years. I started painting David the second time I stopped drinking. Mm. And I used to give my paintings away to like women's shelters and stuff for charitable mm. charitable foundations, things like that. Um, but now, uh, knowing that I'm a Mohawk, now I'm telling the stories of my family. I'm telling the stories from this book. I'm telling my stories inside these paintings. And when I say that for those listeners that haven't seen my art, literally, I'm writing the yes. detail. Yes, I, yes, I <laughs> it's kind of crazy, but the detail in yeah. the paintings is yeah. all is all writing. That's right. So, um, which you don't really see until you get up close to, to notice that. Yeah, right? that's yeah. right. So it's 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 telling that story. The book, I'm telling you a story. The paintings, I'm telling you a story. Um, the book has been turned into a play. I'm telling you a story. The play launches in 2021. The next book is going. So everything. Is about honoring and uh, and representing uh, my own place in the Mohawk world. Uh, Leave Harvey Osmond. Uh huh. Tell us about that. Oh, that was put together. Um, uh, Blackie and the Rodeo Kings were supposed to go on a tour, and Colin Linden from Blackie and the Rodeo Kings got a call. He said he called me up one day. He says, "Mr. Wilson." He calls me Mr. Wilson. He said. Uh, he says, I got a call I've been waiting for since I was 12 years old. I said, what's that? He goes, Bob Dylan called me and asked me to be his guitar player. He says, but we have, what should I do? I said, <laughs> I said, you got to go be Bob Dylan's guitar player, man. <laughs> so it kind of left me, uh, left me in a, in a lurch that, uh, I was happy to be on because my buddy was getting that, mm. that job. My mm. buddy just won a Grammy too. So nice. they're nice things. Yeah. You know what? You gotta, you gotta be happy for your friends. And uh, I didn't have much to do, and I ran into Mike Timmons from the Cowboy Junkies, who I've always admired, the Trinity Sessions, that album they made with one microphone at the Trinity Church. Mm -hmm. it, 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 it changed a lot of uh, thinking mm -hmm. in the songwriting world. It, it was uh, music that was made without ego, and that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to make music that was, uh, had a great groove to it, and that was played where nobody was trying to show off. So we got together mm -hmm. and we recorded a couple songs. And that was 11 years ago. And now the last record that I made, we made four records in, in 11 years. And, and every one of them have been up for a Juno. And now I'm up for um, a Juno for my last record, Mohawk. Yeah. Um, so uh, I, don't know, uh, I don't know what I'm going to do musically next. I mean, this is the thing at the age of... It's not like I'm a rich guy, David. But um, I feel creatively uh, uh, that's my wealth, mm. and and that's what mm. keeps me hopefully vibrant. Mm. Hopefully, mm. you feel I'm vibrant because uh, that that's that's what I. The next thing that I want to do creatively is write this book, finish this book, Blood Memory for Random House, get this play on the go, uh, record some music, and uh, and get the scholarship up and running. All right.
Now, you do have uh, you have stuff happening this year in 2020. Oh, yeah. Blackie and the Rodeo Kings. You got a tour, I understand? Is that yeah, right? we do. Uh, that tour, the rest of the tour is being announced, I guess, later this week. But we're going to travel Canada. So we started uh, the first show. We did the launch, uh, the new Blackie and the Rodeo King album, which is called King of This Town. Uh, we, we launched it uh, on the stage of the Ryman Auditorium in Nashville, Tennessee at the Grand Old Opry on a Saturday night. And I think that's about the best possible way you could imagine launching a record. So after that, it's all downhill, David. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of downhill, I, I don't know if this if this would uh, 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 at all fit into that. But I love the picture that uh, you have uh, in Nashville. Uh-huh. Of you standing in front of the uh, Loveless Motel. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, I know. I, I, I don't know. Uh, I don't know how that picture ended up as the uh, press release or yeah. the article on yeah. the scholarship, but right. I know that uh, the Loveless is outside of Nashville. Mm. It's it, it's it, it's shell is the original shell of the Loveless Motel. The motel rooms are turned into little shops, mm. but inside is real live Tennessee country ham, you know, real mm. live Southern fried chicken, nice. you know, grits and groceries. Mm. And uh, so, um, you can basically, uh, you know what, it's a place you go to eat that you never let your cardiologist know you're there. <laughs> you can never tell your cardiologist you've been to the Loveless. <laughs> hey, listen, speaking of cardiologist, and, and I was going to wonder, I was asking, wanted to ask you about this because the last time we uh, sent a text to each other, mm-hmm. I believe you were just getting over a health issue. Yeah, I had a stroke a, yeah. a, a year and a bit ago. I was driving a car. Yeah. Actually, okay. So I'm coming home from the Sudbury Literary Festival and I'm feeling kind of funny. I'm coming down the 400 and my left arm fell off the steering wheel. Mm. And it's like, it was really hard to move it. And I thought, well, oh, this is kind of weird. And, uh, and I drove all the way home mm. with one arm, uh, which is okay. Yeah. And then I got home and uh, I figured I better go to the hospital. This doesn't feel right. Right. And uh, somebody said, I think you might have, this is like a stroke. And I said, so I went home. Uh, Instead of going to the hospital, I drove all the way home from Sudbury. I I got to my house. I undressed myself with one arm, got in the shower and washed because Bunny Wilson always said, you never go to the doctor or the hospital with a dirty (laughs) David, which is like common sense, isn't it? So not only did I shower myself with one arm, then I had to get dressed with one arm, and then I went to the hospital, and they said, Mr. Wilson, you've had a minor stroke. Uh, but thanks for taking a shower. Thanks for taking a shower, yeah. So, um, yeah, so, uh, you know what? That was, uh, uh, health-wise, that was a wake-up call, but I'm going to tell you that if you want your bell rung, find out that you're actually a Mohawk at 53. Mm. That That's pretty well the bell ringing that you all need. That's the wake-up call that I needed, uh, the wake-up call to stir up all the ghosts and the prisoners down in my dungeons and mm. allow me to hopefully do the job of representing the Mohawk culture in my own way mm. and doing everything I can to help uh, the Indigenous communities. Well, I appreciate you saying that because we are going to have to, unfortunately, end our our uh, our time with you. But I wanted to uh, to mention... About the, the, the concert uh, is coming up on May 1st, I believe. May 1st at McMaster University, a beautiful theater there. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, it's getting close to sold out. Yep. And um, the goal is to raise $100,000. And, uh, you know, that just takes me uh, walking around, knocking on doors. Hopefully uh, everybody 
if somebody would just give $100,000 to the charity, I think that would be much better. (laughs) (laughs) It'd be a lot less work for me, but I actually don't mind the hard work. Now, uh, speaking of that, uh, the the people that want to uh, either donate or or actually buy tickets, they can Mm -hmm. go online. Yeah. Um, If you go to, uh, now I don't know if the donation button is up yet. Okay. uh, But if you go to uh, uh, TomWilsonOnline.com. Okay. Um, there is a page for the scholarship that you can go to and, uh, it will, it will tell you all about anything there is to know about the scholarship right now. It will tell you about, it will tell you about our intent. Uh, it will tell you a little bit of history on it and, uh, hopefully there's a donate button there. Although all the money goes straight to, uh, the McMaster University, Tom Wilson, uh, indigenous scholarship. Yes. And also, uh, you're looking to try to raise about $50,000, I believe. Uh, you know what? Altogether. But Ta- at the concert, maybe about 10 or so. Is that what you're kind of About 10 for? grand at the yeah. concert. And, uh, we actually, uh, I decided to, uh, raise my sights and, and we're going for a hundred grand. Mm. So I got to raise a hundred grand by uh, May 1st and, uh. Uh, you know, I actually shouldn't be hanging around talking to you right now, David. I should be <laughs> trying to find this $100,000. I know it's around here somewhere. Well, hopefully someone listening will do exactly that, come forward uh, from this conversation that they've heard and, and maybe help donate towards that. That'd be wonderful. There you go. Tom Wilson, three-time Juno, winning musician, multiple gold records. And uh, it's been a pleasure to have him here. And we look forward to having him back because there's a hell of a lot more we need to talk about. Today. Thank you, David. I also want to say Nyawa, Miigwech, Wanishi, and thank you to everyone who helps put Moment of Truth together. They include in Ottawa, Jill Kennedy and Caroline O'Neill. In Toronto, Andrew Johnson, Luca Capone, Kathy Zabokin, Andrew St. Germain. Nyawa, Miigwech, and thanks for listening.